This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is manning the board. Will Erskin is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Niagara on the Lake is listening to the mighty 900 CHML in Hamilton and 980 CFPL in London. Terry and Alex inviting all to come down and enjoy the season. Here's Scott Thompson. And a hospitality. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board. Uh, spinning the... Um I know I should know this right off the top of my head, but I don't. Uh, Johnny Breston and his Delta Cats. Do you know who was in the Delta Cats? Ike Turner of Ike and Tina Turner. Yeah, that's Rock 88, 1951. Uh, some say the very first rock and roll song. There you go. All right. Uh, earlier on this afternoon, uh, it was uh, quite exciting. Uh, the uh, Axiom SpaceX mission returns with four very rich people on board. Uh, you know, it's not TV, but here's what it sounds like. Dragon separation confirmed. So whenever you hear that in master control, that's usually a good sign. Uh, so uh, there you have it. Uh, the first, the first sort of tourist space mission uh at the international space station is now uh coming to or is now officially over and i think they were delayed for like three days which you know when you think about it considering what's happened with sunwing and what have you i mean we know the hell about being delayed but being delayed aboard the international space station i think you're getting a big bang for your buck there i'm not sure what it works out to the price per day uh in the millions was it 50 million to go do the math you know you got a little bit of a bargain there now, hopefully they just don't lose the luggage on the way home, right? All right, uh, we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. Also, uh, major announcements in regard to the military in Canada, and we certainly know where that discussion has gone of late. And uh, Defence Minister Anita Anand announcing today that uh, there's going to be some pretty big systematic changes. Here's what she had to say at a news conference. Uh, and again, how many reports of these, uh, of these reports have we had? And then they kind of get put on the shelf. Uh, here's what uh, Anita Anand had to say today. National Defense has officially recognized that these practices exist in the defense team. And as this report today acknowledges, these obstacles hurt our operational capacity and harm the security of our country. Uh, and this is uh, the recommendations moving forward and why this one will not sit on a shelf. People who do not live up to those values have no place in our military. The reality is that systemic racism exists in our institution, and we need to root it out, and we need to eliminate it. 
in regard to recruiting and moving forward what needs to be done in order to get people interested in this career. Everywhere I go, people say they want more Canada. And to deliver that, we need to attract more people to our armed forces. And we need an armed forces that looks like Canada. There you have it, uh, Anita Anand on moving forward. And also acknowledging that there's been these reports over 20 years that have really said basically the same stuff and nothing has been done. So hopefully uh, this time out we will be seeing changes. And oh yeah, the other big story of the day, uh, the deal with Elon Musk and Twitter uh, will be going through. $43 billion offer. Uh, has It looks like it has been accepted. So what does that mean for Twitter? What does that mean for Twitter users? Does anybody care? Uh, what does it mean for Donald Trump? Uh, we'll have that dis- uh, discussion coming up a little later on. Also, U.S. officials meeting with Ukraine President Zelensky uh, earlier today. And, and it was fascinating because uh, officials from the U.S. saying that Russia has already lost. Uh, this war it'll be fascinating to see uh, what moves forward uh, as we as we see more weaponry arriving on the shores of ukraine also travel restrictions uh for kids under 12 released uh, um, uh, restrictions are lowered today we'll talk about that coming up a little later on as they lift some of those uh, and talk about what that is all about also the emergency act inquiry is going to begin so uh, a little detail on that what they hope to find out how long it is all going to take uh those are all discussions coming up uh on the show also mcmaster university has been selected to uh, re-engineer an all-electric cadillac uh this is a few schools including i think university of waterloo the other canadian school in on this along with a whole pile of other u.s schools uh that are sort of given this task this project uh and fascinating to see i just noticed that uh gm has announced uh that they are building a all-electric corvette uh, it'll be fascinating to see uh, what that is all about. Uh, so uh, the EV industry taking off and obviously the hammer uh, highly involved. Also this hour, going to bring in uh, Paul Delaney, professor, York University, astronomy expert, and, and talk about the fact that uh, four uh, people have paid their way onto uh, the International Space Station, about $50 million a pop. So at the end of the day, uh, he tries to predict when it will hit the million-dollar mark, which is, I guess making a lot more uh, reachable for some who uh, can pay a million-dollar fare. Uh, We'll be talking about that. And now, obviously, uh, announced today that uh, Elon Musk has taken over Twitter. What does that mean uh, from a business standpoint? Is this all all just about ego? Uh, What is the attraction uh, of Twitter to Elon Musk? And, you know, here's a guy that flies people into space. Here's a guy that events electric vehicles. And, or produces electric vehicles, and, and, and now he's got a love affair with Twitter. So it's going to be fascinating to see where that all goes. Lots of talk about electric vehicles, especially in the, in the last year or so, uh, with a couple of major announcements uh, here in Ontario about production of EVs here. Also, just happened to be watching on one of the many screens in front of me, General Motors announcing uh, their first electric Corvette. Uh, and boy, the promotional footage on that is pretty cool. So, uh, really, this is, uh, a, an industry that is, is gaining traction, as we'll say. And obviously, lots of opportunity here for, for many players, whether it's, uh, uh, a, a province, a municipality, whether it's a country, or whether it's a, uh, an institution of higher learning. McMaster University has been selected to re-engineer an all-electric Cadillac by the U.S. Department of Energy, General Motors, and MathWork. This is 
part of the EcoCar EV Challenge. It includes 15 North American universities, Mac, one of them, also uh, Canadian, getting Canadian exposure in all of this, uh, University of Waterloo. But let's bring in Dr. Heather Sheardown, Acting Dean of Engineering at McMaster University, and is with us now. Heather, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, and it's lovely to chat with you. This sounds like a pretty cool opportunity. Give us, uh, tell us exactly what this is. It's almost like it's a contest, so to speak. It is a contest, actually. The students work in teams, and they are given a number of different challenges. They have to work through them. They are donated, actually, a 2023 Cadillac Lyric, uh, and they work through the challenges. Some of them are around um, diversity or mobility, so for people who may have issues around getting in and out of a car, for example. So it's a really cool opportunity for our students to see what it's really like to work in the auto industry. So it sounds almost like, uh, you know, GM has given them this vehicle and then said, here's a list of issues, problems or obstacles we're, we're trying to overcome. What do you think? And then off you go. Well, I'm not sure it's necessarily problems, but it's it's things that they would like to do. So new design ideas, refining things that are already there. Um, how do we, you know, demonstrate the potential of advanced propulsion systems and, and other things over the four-year competition period? So there's a whole bunch of challenges that the students will be working on, and, and some of them are things that maybe GM is working on on their own, but, but really it's, you know, what is it like to work in the industry and to see what it's like to help design these kinds of vehicles. And as you mentioned, this is a four-year project. Yes. And so anti, uh, how much interaction is there uh, between the students and, and General Motors during this? Is, is, it, is it something where they work all in unison, or are they given a task and go off and do it? How does that work? Yeah, it's a competition. So they'll be working with uh, our Mark facility, so the McMaster Automotive Research Center and the team over there to help work on this but uh, my understanding is that you know general motors and and the u.s uh, department of energy gives them the challenges but it's not about working with general motors it's about solving the problem and how did mcmaster get involved in this how were they selected a part of the process uh well i mean our our lead person is dr ali amadi and he is an amazing researcher in the field of vehicle electrification and smart cities and, you know, how do we, how do we design everything of the future um, around getting around? And he has had teams involved in these kinds of challenges for the last few years. So it's very exciting that uh, he managed to bring yet another group of students to fruition that would be involved in this kind of challenge. When, you know, you've said that they've done this a couple of times, when you see the end product, and obviously we don't know here, or the end results of this of this competition and such, are the universities, do they, is there common denominators, common ground there, or are the ideas and the solutions from uh, one extreme to the other? Uh, I haven't actually seen. I'm really disappointed. There, There's a challenge going on in Arizona in the spring, and I can't go, but... Um, you know, I think I think it could be all over the map, right? The idea is that the students come up with their own ideas and implement them in this car. So it's very exciting to see what they'll come up with. And would they be aware of anything that any other university is doing, or are they working in their own in their own environment? 
they will be working in their own environment. So it's a challenge. It's a it's a team challenge. We're going to have right. up to 150 students working on it, brightest minds in the area working on these problems, and we'll see what comes out. It could be very exciting. We're seeing more and more collaboration between academia and industry and such. Obviously, this is a great example of that. What are the advantages here? Why is this a good idea? Uh, well, I mean, we... First of all, training. We are teaching the students what it's really like to work in an industrial environment. We're giving them problems. And these guys are brilliant. They have really bright ideas and, you know, they think of things different ways and and they bring something fresh to the table that maybe an engineer who's been working in the field for 30 or 40 years doesn't. So we're uh, both training them and we're, we're taking advantage of their fresh ideas. And, you know, it gives the universities uh, and engineering faculties the opportunity to make it real. So what is it really like to work on a problem and have to work within the constraints of the problem and actually solve it? And will the students be working with this for the entire four-year project? Or they, do they go in and do a year and then go on to something else? Or will there be students that are following this through the whole thing, whole process? Well, Hopefully, we'll have students that manage to make the team every year, but uh, every year we have um, teams that are involved in a number of different challenges, and this would just be right. one of them, and they would be selected every year. So, it, yeah, Fascinating stuff, and we'll be watching. It'll be great to see what happens uh, with this one after four years. Dr. Heather Sheardown is with us, Acting Dean of Engineering, McMaster University. Mac has been selected to pre-engineer an all-electric Cadillac by the U.S. Department of Energy, General Motors, and MathWork. It's part of the EcoCar EV Challenge, including 15 North American universities. Heather, good luck with all of this. Congratulations. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Dragon separation confirmed. Yeah, whenever you hear that, it's always good uh, a good sign. Things are going smoothly, admission control. It, and uh, the first all-private astronaut team ever to fly aboard the International Space Station uh, departed the orbiting outpost on Sunday to begin the descent back to Earth, capping a two-week science mission hailed as a milestone in commercial space flight. And uh, as we heard, uh, everything went as uh, planned. Let's bring in Paul Delaney, astronomy professor, York University, and with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am indeed, Scott. Nice to be with you. So it looks like, Paul, this went uh, perfect from uh, beginning to end. Safe to say that? With the exception of the fact that they spent an extra week in orbit because of bad weather in the Atlantic, uh, this was one of those occasions where the flight delay didn't bother them in the slightest, and they probably cheered on the delays. But other than that, yeah, picture perfect. I was going to ask you about that because we certainly heard uh, all the uh, trials and tribulations of an airline and what they went through uh, with the reservation system. Uh, yeah. Whereas I would, I would think that these four, when they found out that they're getting uh, an extra stay, they're getting their money's worth. Happy as all get out. I mean, if, if I'm going up to the International Space Station for eight days and they extend it to 15 at no extra cost, who wouldn't like that? I mean, yeah. come on. <laughs> so there, uh, there, you, there you go. They immediately got it for half price. So yes. would they know when they extended this how long it would be? It would be another eight days, six days, two days, whatever, or is it a day-by-day -day sort of thing? Or, or do it, you have to it, plan that much in advance? It was day-by-day. -day. Uh, you know, the, the flight plan called for eight days aboard the uh, International Space Station. 
And at that point in time, they start looking at the weather. And as we all know, weather changes so quickly that it's not something that you can predict with any accuracy more than 24 hours out. They want to make sure that the landing site is, you know, not a lot of waves, not a lot of lightning, not a lot of rain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they only make those calls 24 hours out. And literally it was day to day to day. But in between time, the astronauts or the private astronauts are simply having a good time up at the International Space Station and extending the science baseline. So everybody wins on this occasion, other than the weather forecasters who have to you know, be on call day by day by day. So it would literally be the last few minutes of this that would be complicated by the weather. And as you said, uh, splashing down, and obviously if there's winds, that could affect uh, where they end up and such. So just better to wait for a sunny day. Exactly. And there was no reason to hurry it. I mean, you know, you're on board the International Space Station. It's, it's the orbital hotel, so as to speak. So you can stay up there and it, it, it's not causing any grief. It certainly did push back the uh, departure date for Crew 4, which was a NASA right. flight. They were supposed to fly last week, which means that the Crew 3 is on board the International Space Station for a little extra time. But again, these are minimal things. It's much better to keep everybody in place, waiting for the right moment to come back safely, rather than to push the envelope. So talk about the, the process, the procedure, when all of a sudden, okay, kids, everybody into the capsule, it's time to go. What then happens? Right. So they're sitting on board the International Space Station, and then the, uh, the, the flight control team, which was a combination of SpaceX, Axiom, and NASA on this occasion. So it's a, it's a large cohort of individuals. They basically say, okay, we've got good weather conditions predicted for the landing site. It's time to go. So they get that call. And about sort of four to six hours later, everybody gets into the space capsule, the Dragon Endeavor in this case. Uh, they close the hatch, and that's the you know the departure ceremony. And there's a lot of pomp and circumstance that goes into this, uh, and so on. But then they back away from the International Space Station, nice and quietly. They're in orbit in this case for about 16 hours. So they pulled away from the International Space Station, maneuvered away, got themselves into the right orbital uh, position for firing the retros and coming back to Earth if, in fact, that call is made. So, in other words, you pull away, but there is still, over the next few hours, monitoring of the uh, the landing site. And if things go astray, you can still back away and say, no, we're not landing today. You could fly the Endeavour for a couple of days free-flying if the need arises. So if the weather deteriorated badly, they can sort of wave off attempts. And even then, they could still go back to the International Space Station if things really do go awry. But in this case, they backed away. 16 hours later, they fired their retro rockets. They closed up the, uh, the Dragon capsule and then under parachute canopy landed in the Atlantic just off Jacksonville, Florida. Picture perfect. What's the arrival time journey compared to the d departure, compared to coming home? What's the difference in time? Well, I mean, it, it is variable. You can fly from um, you know, Florida to the International Space Station in three hours if you really had to. Generally speaking, most flights take anywhere from one to two days to do it just because they have the time and depends what else they want to do in orbit. Are there things that they need to do prior to the docking and so on and so forth? The, the Dragon capsule has become now uh, such an integral part of the, the NASA ISS operation that in this particular instance, it was a 21-hour flight up to the International Space Station. Uh, and then the return, 
ended up being a comparable amount of time from the moment they undocked to when they actually landed. But as I say, you can come back faster than that if the need arises. But in this instance, it was basically a day up and a day back, so as to speak. Wow. So the journey there to and fro would be just as spectacular as the time you actually spend on the International Space Station. Like, I mean, and I that, can't imagine what it's like. To, what, I can't imagine that, what it's like to ride that thing home for 16 hours. <laughs> well, as I say, I think this is one of the reasons that they did it slow, so as to speak, because the three of the four astronauts on board had never flown before. Uh, yeah, Michael um, Lopez Alegria is a former NASA astronaut. He was the commander of this mission, part of the Axiom team, but he's been to space. The other three, they wanted to get their money's worth. And so getting their space legs, so as to speak, going around Earth, in Earth orbit with the um, not being a, a, attached to the International Space Station, that was all part of, if you will, the ticket. So there was no mm. need to hurry up and hurry back. You know, take it nice and leisurely, and in this case, you know, it, it's the journey, not the destination that really counted. So they were sort of taking the, the long scenic route home. Uh, Precisely, exactly. When you, when, Instead of when driving got to the, Hamilton, quickly yes. sort of went via That's London right. or something like that. That's right. You, you take the limousine along the lakeshore for the view. Yeah, you uh, got it. That's exactly so, right. What about when these four return? Uh, is it do they collect their bags and they're in the cab on the way home? What's the process? <laughs> no. Do they have to stay there and have a, you know be tested? What have you? What's the what's the the process of of, of getting of ending this flight like? Yeah, uh, so there's a couple of important points here. One is that after 17 days in space, there is going to be a little bit of a rehabilitation timeline. Uh, that 17 days in space is not long compared to what a lot of flight crews do engage in these days. But three of these four astronauts, private astronauts, aren't in the peak of physical condition. And the weightless environment for 17 days is going to take a little bit of a toll on them, or at least the uh, reacclimation to the gravity of Earth is going to take it. In fact, when you saw them climbing out of the uh, the capsule today, particularly the oldest member of the crew, you know, he was a bit shaky on his feet. And I can understand that. So there is going to be a two or three day timeline where they are going to be monitored. Yeah, they're, they're been reunited with their family and so on and so forth, but they're not jumping in the cabin going hot. They are going to be <laughs> monitored for the next couple of days. There's going to be a lot of blood taken from them because part of the whole exercise of science here is to monitor them before they go up into space, mm -hmm. monitor them in space and monitor their return. This is all designed to give us a better baseline for when you and I fly into space, right? So there is a lot of medical uh, testing that is going to be uh, undergone by these astronauts. And of course, if they don't feel 100% after a couple of days, they're going to stay for a little longer. So yeah, there is this long debrief process just to be on the safe side. Michael uh, Lopez Alegria, though, he's a space veteran. It wouldn't surprise me if he's in the cab tomorrow. <laughs> Professor Paul Delaney with us, Astronomy York University, talking about the first all-private astronaut team to fly aboard the International Space Station, returning home to Earth. As always, Paul, thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome. Take care. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
Good night. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we've been talking about this for a while. And I think a lot of people were kind of surprised, uh, especially in, in this world, uh, in the tech world, uh, because Elon Musk kind of does things, it seems, on a whim. But let's be serious. This guy uh, literally revolutionized the electric vehicle industry uh, and is now carrying tourists to the International Space Station. So, you know, there's got to be a couple of smart brain cells in there somewhere. And many are questioning why he would even bother with Twitter. What is in this for him? But it seems that the takeover is uh, moving forward uh, about $44 billion. And what does this mean to Twitter? What does this mean to everyone in the social media business? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. He's with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well and glad to be with you. So I remember before Donald Trump, many said that Twitter was old and tired and dying. And then, of course, Donald Trump started using it on an hourly basis and things changed. Are you surprised that a guy that's into rockets and EVs is playing in this space? Yes. Short answer is yes. I I don't (laughs) actually see where Elon Musk wins anything today. The big winner today is actually the current uh, Twitter stockholders. Before this all began, Twitter was trading at around $46 a share. He wants to offer them $54.20, I think it is, a share. That's an instant 15% gain. I think this is actually why shareholders put a lot of pressure on the Twitter uh, board to come to some deal because they wanted to cash in. Let's get a sure 15%. And to reinforce the point, Scott, Thursday morning, Twitter is going to release its first quarter results. And I'm going to tell you now, even though I've not seen them, they're probably not good results, meaning that the total number of users of Twitter may have gone down, the revenues may have gone down, the profits may have gone down. So look, let's get this deal while things are okay, because uh, nobody may want us down the road. So they're the big winners. I think the loser is Elon Musk. I don't understand why he's doing this. There is absolutely no synergy between this company and his other mm. two money-making companies. And although he speaks to altruism, <coughs> excuse me, I want to take the company and, and uh, restore free speech, uh, the laws say that these companies can't do that. They have to curate what's out there <coughs> to make sure there is nothing that's going to hurt other people. What about, as you said, the pressure's now on, what if he doesn't perform? What if this doesn't? I mean, I'm sure there's going to be a, a certain amount of immediate interest and there'll be, you know, some some changes that, that, that will uh, be nice and shiny for people to see. But what if this doesn't perform? Well, that's a good question. Now, the man is worth roughly $150 billion. He's risking, oh, depending upon how you counted, about $30 billion of his fortune on this. I don't think the company is going to go to zero value, but he could easily blow $10-15 billion if this doesn't work out. And again, Scott, I've got to tell you, I just don't understand the rationale. For instance, uh, Elon Musk has mused, mused about not only taking this company private, meaning all the shares get canceled, it's not going to be traded on the stock market, but he's also mused about canceling all advertising on the site. Let's make it a subscription site where people pay $2 a month or $5 a month so they have the pleasure of tweeting to other people. I've talked to my own students about this, maybe not exactly with Twitter. I've used the more popular Instagram platform and said if Facebook came along and charged you $5 a month, could you live without Instagram? 
Amazingly, when it's free, they can't. The minute you charge $5 a month, they'll find another way to survive. And that's what worries me here. Do you think that we're we're missing something here that he's trying to turn this into something, you know, much like, you know, whether it's space travel or EVs, that just something we're not expecting? Is, could he have something up his sleeve? Now, let me phrase it this way. This is what I hope. I hope there is some grand plan that he has chosen not to reveal, that when we all see it, we're going to say, my God, this man mm. is, <clears throat> you know, Da Vinci. He's he's clever beyond belief. <clears throat> I just don't know what that is at the moment. I don't see it. There is no synergy between Tesla, SpaceX, and Twitter. And what about what do you think this means uh, in the short term for Twitter users or even those that are involved in the company? Well, he said some good things there. For instance, he said uh, he wants to have an edit button. He wants to introduce an edit button. So that if I post a tweet, <clears throat> let's say for the sake of argument, it might be something a little controversial. I can go back and edit the tweet after the fact and fix it. So if I've chosen the wrong word or if I've offended somebody, I can fix it. He's talked about, uh, I mentioned about deleting ads, but he's also talked about um, allowing longer tweets or being able to attach other things to your tweets, which which is great. But uh, Scott, just on the weekend, the European Union passed a new law which says that all social media platforms have to curate what gets published on their sites to make sure they're not publishing anything that uh, mm. invokes violence, that is a disinformation, that is noticeably wrong, and they have to be able to audit this, demonstrate that they are checking on a regular basis. This runs completely against what Elon has said he wants to do with Twitter, but that's what the law is going to require him to do. It requires it today in the United States, and now it's going to require it in the European Union. I, again, I just, I just don't know if he's thought this all through. Now, he is a brilliant man, and look, He's got a Canadian connection. His mother was Canadian, and he went to school here in Canada. So I wish him well, but I, I just, this one I don't see. Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. Elon Musk set to take over Twitter. And what does it mean? We'll have to see. Marvin, thanks for the time and insight. Be well. I'll try. Thank you. All right. We've been talking about uh, Elon Musk uh, purchasing Twitter for like almost $44 billion. Uh, kind of chuckling because I think many thought it wouldn't even happen. We wouldn't get to this point. Uh, but it looks like it uh, is going through. Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. He is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. Pretty momentous day for a lot of people. Yeah, I can imagine that your phone's ringing off the hook today. Uh, we were talking to a business professor earlier on, and he said, you know, for the life of him, he couldn't figure out why Elon Musk would get into this. It doesn't vertical with any of his other companies. And remember, before Donald Trump, uh, Twitter was tired and old and was dying until he started using it every hour. Is Twitter worth the cake that Elon Musk is spending here? I think through my lens, through your lens, through a business professor's lens, anyone with a business lens, uh, no, it's not. As a business, it's uh, essentially a social media platform that failed to reach its potential. You know, we know what happened compared to Facebook and others that they exploded. They've got billions of users, multiple apps across all of their platforms, and here you have Twitter that barely has 200 million um, and uh, essentially was left for dead when they you know, got rid of Donald Trump. And so, you know, Twitter has long been uh, a, a challenging social media platform to size up. And as a business, it has not been the most successful. As 
as an influencer, as a platform of influence, it's had outsized influence relative to the size of its business. But just from a dollars and cents perspective, if I were an accountant, I would, you know, and if I were speaking into Elon Musk's ear, uh, I would say this, this really doesn't measure up to the other businesses that you have in your portfolio, despite the fact that, and in fairness to Elon Musk, he has said this isn't about money. Uh, it is about restoring the town square. It's about, uh, you know, having a digital place uh, a platform where you can say essentially what you want without fear of being censored. That's what he's getting at. And he's essentially saying, I have the money, I can pretty much do whatever I want, and it isn't about money to me. Um, uh, yes, he can do anything he wants, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be successful. I mean, if his EVs suck, nobody would be buying them, and if his rockets blew up, they wouldn't be taking travelers to the space station. So what can he do? Is this all about free speech for him, or this guy's brilliant? Has he got something up his sleeve, uh, Carmi, that we're just not seeing yet, that he's in, you know, when it's over, you'll go, oh, my goodness, this is revolutionary. Well, he's the world's richest guy, and he's always sort of played fast and loose with the public relations rules. He very famously got rid of his media relations team at Tesla. He essentially believes that you know he has the ability to get the message out. He doesn't have to hire professionals. And I think that's the same logic at play here, is he essentially wants to have a great big giant megaphone, and he doesn't want to be subject to anyone else's rules. And, of course, he's one of the most popular users on uh, Twitter right now, 83 million followers and growing. Uh, and he bristles at the fact that sometimes he'll say things that cross Twitter's rules, that violate the terms of use or terms of service, and might get him, uh, you know, might get a tweet uh, deleted or might get his account suspended or that other people will get their account suspended because of what they may or may not say. And he wants to remove those rules. He wants Twitter to be an anything-goes platform because if he wants to say something wonky, he doesn't want anyone telling him, you know, no, you can't. Uh, he wants to be the guy who sets the rules, and he probably figures he's got deep enough pockets to do that. That you know, if 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 he doesn't like the rules of the game, well, he'll just buy the game and make some new rules. So he doesn't care if this makes money or this new idea for this, uh, you know, to rejuvenate this platform. He he doesn't care whether it works or not. I mean, what if he he, you know, he makes all these changes that we think he may do, and then nothing changes. It's or does he just not care if it fails as long as he gets his free speech and whatever he wants to say on his own platform? I think it's the latter because he did say on a couple of occasions after he bought his initial nine point two percent stake in March in Twitter and became at the time the largest shareholder, uh, he said this wasn't about money and that you know it wasn't uh, he wasn't seeking profit for this. I have a funny feeling that was that's how the headline played it. But long term, he may very well look at his interests and go, maybe that wasn't wasn't the smartest move. That he'll start to bristle at the prospect of pumping billions of dollars into this business that he's already bought for forty four billion dollars, uh, plus the three billion that he's already in for, and he'll essentially say, you know what, maybe it wasn't the smartest move. Maybe I don't need to have the biggest megaphone. Maybe I can get my message out through other ways. I don't need to own uh, the platform as well. And so I think he may yet live to regret it. Um, you know, but at the same time, this is a guy who has been doubted many, many times before. And even though I don't yeah. agree with where Twitter is going to go under Elon Musk, it's kind of hard to look at SpaceX or Tesla uh, or, you know, his, his Gigafactory initiatives or the Boring Company uh, or Neuralink and, and question uh, his ability to change the rules of the game. Maybe he has another vision uh, that we're just not 
part of at this point, and maybe it'll just take time for that vision to play out. And what if he buys a megaphone and no one listens, but I guess because he is who he is, I mean, it's like plugging into Einstein. Everybody would want to listen just to know Pretty what he's much. doing. I, I mean, I agree. I mean, certainly he's, he's, he is a modern-day Renaissance man. He's probably, and again, whether you love him or hate him, he's one of the most interesting people on planet Earth. He, he goes into a business, a sector, and he literally rewrites the rules. Rocketry, you know, there was no such thing as re- true reusability or affordability before he came along. Uh, SpaceX has changed the rules of that game. Electric vehicles, the conventional vehicle industry fought electric vehicles tooth and nail until Tesla gave them no choice. And now the world is moving in that direction. So it's hard to look at what he's done elsewhere and go, mm, you know, if he doesn't change the rules of the game. He absolutely does. And so I would suspect that the same thing will happen here. But, you know, the, the question then becomes, at some point, who cares, right? If Twitter becomes so toxic that millions of people continue yeah. to leave the platform, and so many people have said, if he buys it, I'm out, including today, my inbox has been flooded with messages from friends and family members who are saying the same thing, uh, then, you know, he, he'll have the big megaphone, but at what point will we even care? And so we may yet lose interest at some point. He may need to find another way to reach out to us. I think it's just hip to say you're not going to follow it, but it's like watching a train wreck. You can't look away. I'm Bobby Barry. Surprised if this means a decrease. Uh, Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist. Always fun, Carmi. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Appreciate being here, Scott. Thanks. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, with what we've been seeing with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a lot of attention has turned to uh, Canada's military. Much like during a uh, global pandemic, uh, the attention turns to a healthcare uh, system, which is inadequate. Now we're seeing the same sort of things uh, with our military. And today, Defense Minister Anita Anand announced plans for modernizing NORAD and building the Arctic over the horizon radar system by 2028. The U.S. has been pressuring Canada to improve uh, the Continental Defense System for some time, and obviously in light of what's happening, uh, the chatter has changed. To talk about this and other uh, such things, let's bring in Professor Arl Braun, International uh, Relations and Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Arl, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. Uh, before we get to uh, NORAD and the, mo- and the modernization of, of protecting the Arctic, I- I'd like to get your take on what is happening today uh, in regard to uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and U.S. officials meeting with President Zelensky today, and even one commenting that, uh, considering where we are, that Russia's already lost the war. What are your, what are your thoughts on, on, on those comments? I think the comments you're uh, referring to came from... Uh, the Secretary of Defense, uh, General Austin, and he's not a diplomat, so he's much more blunt than Tony Blinken and people from the State Department. And what he was saying was that Russia is losing, that they have suffered grievous blows, that their capacity has been impaired, and that Ukraine has to win. It can win if it's provided with the right kind of military help in terms of equipment and that Russia must not be allowed to rebuild that capacity. In other words, what he was talking about was rebuilding NATO deterrence, because NATO deterrence had failed. This is why Russia invaded Ukraine. We could not prevent them from doing it, even though Ukraine is not a member of NATO. And so uh, it becomes very clear that at least in terms of the leader of the Pentagon, 
there is now a perception that we cannot go back to the way things were, that uh, Vladimir Putin is a present uh, and very real danger. And as long as he stays in power, he will remain a danger. Uh, so at the beginning of all this conflict, many were surprised that Ukraine was putting up the fight that it did, and it was very noble and heroic and such, but it was just a matter of time. Is that attitude changing now and looking more at, well, what is this? what is going to be the outcome here? Because it doesn't seem it's going to be a clear win for, for Russia. It has changed dramatically, and we, of course, cannot predict uh, the ultimate outcome because it is conceivable that Russia could rally, that uh, they will learn uh, uh, and improve their uh, tactics, that uh, they will persist no matter what the losses, and never mind to Ukraine and the Ukrainian civilian population, but to Russian soldiers themselves. So they will just keep throwing mass at it. Uh, and so there is that element of uncertainty. But so far, the Russians have performed rather poorly. And the Ukrainians have fought with remarkable tenacity and skill. And they were underestimated. At the beginning, you will recall that the advice coming from the American administration was for mm. the president of Ukraine to flee. And that could have yeah. led to a collapse of the forces. Now uh, we're talking about the possibility of Ukraine winning. That is a sea change. Okay, let's get to NORAD and protecting our north, because obviously this has been something that's been talked about for a long time. NORAD's been around for a long time, and but obviously now with what's happening with uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, these decisions, these discussions have, have heightened. And I understand you've testified before the Senate about this. What's your message? We have to take defense seriously. As much as we emphasize soft power and certainly diplomacy, negotiations, are absolutely crucial, but power is a composite, soft power and hard power combined. You cannot really have one without the other, and there is no magic. So the kind of magical thinking that we were engaging in, and that was that somehow we could get away without uh, having capable armed forces just because we were skilled in negotiations or in diplomacy, or that we could compartmentalize the Arctic, and we could have good relations in the Arctic, uh, even though Russia was aggressive elsewhere. That doesn't quite work. The return of geopolitics shows that uh, security threats are interrelated. And consequently, when we see Russia behaving aggressively in one part of the world, eventually it becomes an aggressive behavior elsewhere. And it's not necessarily the kind of straw man argument that opponents are spending more are putting up, and that is, look, Russia is not going to send uh, forces to occupy our Arctic because what are they going to do with 100,000 uh, square miles of ice? Uh, they can present threats using cruise missiles, uh, attacking uh, targets inside Canada in, in case of conflict. They can interfere with shipping in the Arctic. They can challenge our sovereignty, excess sovereignty in the Northwest Passage. They have uh, claims that they're making that are outrageous in many ways, legal claims to the Lomonosov Peninsula, uh, ridge rather, that is under the Arctic uh, uh, Ocean, and that would give them control over something like one million square kilometers uh, of uh, the Arctic in addition to what they have. They are engaging in reckless uh, 
energy exploration that can cause ecological disaster. So there's so many other ways in which the threat can manifest itself, and we have to understand that in that larger context. Uh, about 30 seconds left here, Arl. Uh, the new Arctic over-the-horizon radar system by 2028, is this sufficient? It is a step in the right direction, but it's piecemeal. It's long overdue, and we need to have a comprehensive strategy. And this is why the 2% spending of GDP remains an important goal that we should try to strive for. All right, Professor Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations and Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, talking about Canada's defense and, of course, in light of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Arl, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me on. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Travel restrictions are lifting for kids as of today, giving families more opportunity to travel uh, this summer. And, you know, I'm going to read you this word for word right from the report, and it still seems confusing to me. It might be easier to ask, Richard, what you have to do to travel as opposed to what you don't have to do. Uh, But as of today, uh, kids 5 to 11 who are accompanied by a fully vaccinated parent, step-parent, guardian, or tutor will no longer be required to complete complete a pre-entry COVID-19 test. Kids under the age of five also do not need to provide a test. And fully vaccinated travelers will no longer to need to provide a quarantine plan upon returning to Canada. How is that different from uh, the other day? Let's ask Richard Vanderloo, president, tripcentral.ca, and is with us now. Richard, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. How are you doing, Scott? Thanks for having me. So is this becoming more simple, Richard? Because it seems like even when you they, they you know, loosen it a bit, it's like, oh, okay, uh, you got to, you know, it's like putting three balls in the air and jumping on one foot. Uh, is this going to make a big change? Is this really easing uh, the, the anxiety among families who want to travel? You know, I think if all the other uh, changes to the the restrictions were sort of Rocky one and Rocky two. This one's like Rocky five. <laughs> or six. I, I don't know any other way to describe it than that. I mean, it's just, you know, another one really. Um, so look, I think it, it probably is going to have some effect on the border, especially driving over. I think that that is a, uh, that is much more. I think, you know, in this situation here, we had a lot of people traveling with kids during the time of restrictions because they could get vaccinated between the ages of five and 11. And a lot of people that were going because the parents had to be vaccinated. They were vaccinating their kids and traveling. There's probably a good chunk of demand, but again, you know, traveling with children, it's a segment of the market. And then traveling with children that are unvaccinated between five and 11 is a subsection. Mm. So, I don't know that we're going to get run over with suddenly there's a whole bunch of families coming out of the woodwork to travel, but certainly it, anything that the conditions sort of relax, the better it is for the industry and certainly for the border, um, you know, crossing over for, for simple trips and into the U.S. and back. And I guess the concern for families where, you know, you take the kids across or whatever, and then if somebody, heaven forbid, uh, tests positive, then it, there's difficulty with getting them back. And that's not an issue now. Or, or this idea of, you know, I'm a fully vaccinated parent. I don't need to get a test, but my kid, my kids do. Mm. So, but, but it was 
for the most part, most of what we were selling because you had to be vaccinated as an adult to get on an airplane. Um, you know, this wasn't much of an issue because we were finding that most families that were traveling were vaccinated. And of course, if you're, if your kids are under five, there is no vaccine. And so, right. you know, so I, I think it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a yawn. Um, it, it, it's a very confusing one to read. I can see if you, yeah, if you like I, yeah, sort this one out, um, exactly. you almost have to read it three times, you know, and that's what we're sort of here to sort out for you. We try to update this on our blog and keep it simple in a, in a chart. Um, and of course the other thing is more about the experience. I think that consumer that the travels will have coming back, the arrive can app, um, isn't asking you for a quarantine plan anymore and, and all right. these things if you're vaccinated. So that was confusing for people. You know, they thought they were following everything right, and then the ArriveCan app was ask, asking all these questions about your quarantine plan. It's like, wait, I thought I didn't have to. <laughs> all right, so let's, uh, so let's say we are calling you up at Trip Central to plan a family trip to, uh, let's pick Florida, uh, Disney, whatever. Um, what do we need now or don't need? Uh, maybe it's easier for what we do need. Uh, what do we need as a family to travel to the United States or anywhere for that matter? Yeah, so this is the, this is the thing to to fly. Um, you know, you you need to be fully vaccinated as adults. Anybody um, you know, twelve and over. It's it's now it's it's optional for kids. Um, when you come home back to Canada, the news here is that both the adults and the children now do not have to do a pre-arrival test coming back to Canada. Mm-hmm. So an unvaccinated child coming back to Canada does now not need to have, um, you know, the pre-arrival test, right? And, and, and obviously the, the, the quarantine plan in the ArriveCan app is, is not required anymore. And is there any random testing still? Yeah, there's still random testing on arrival at, at um, in Canadian airports. Uh, that's that's still going on. We're getting reports of that that you know some people got stopped for a test. It's it's uh, you know I certainly went through that myself when it was in the height of that, and it was pretty efficient. They had mm-hmm. uh, you know quite a few people set up there, and it wasn't it wasn't that much of a inconvenience at all. Uh, are there places that it's more easy to travel and others that are more challenging just because of various laws, international laws? Well, there are still places where you have to get advanced testing, and we disclose those on the website. Um, there are still forms to fill out um, ahead of time, On you know, often there are web forms. You still need to bring your proof of vaccination. Sometimes you upload them to the airline site. So there's definitely steps that still need to be taken. And, you know, we're disclosing all those steps to consumers and reminding them seven days prior what they need to do. There are some countries where uh, third doses are becoming required. You'll see that in Europe. For example, Holland is a place. Um, France is a place now that, um, you know, you could need a third dose if it's been a while since your second. So there's always, there's always and the other thing is, we always know this is going to change. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Stay tuned. We've been we've been fortunate to make some phone calls to people that said, "Hey, you know, we told you you need the test. You don't need the test now." To go to Jamaica, for example, was last week, and people are pretty thankful to get that call. But uh, it it's always subject to change, so it's always good to check at the last minute just before you're about to do everything. 
All right, travel restrictions lifting on kids, giving families more opportunities to travel this summer, but it's still a little dicey, so you're best to check ahead of time. Richard Vanderloop with us. They've got all the details at tripcentral.ca. Richard, thanks so much for the time. Happy traveling. Thanks to you as well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lots coming out from the Canadian Armed Forces today, including from Anita Anon, in regard to uh, not only a report on extremism in uh, the Canadian military, but also the systemic misconduct that's been going on and uh, even protecting the Arctic. To talk more about all of this, Phil Gursky is with us, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and former CSIS analyst and his with us now phil thanks for the time i hope you're well very well scott how are you today i'm doing pretty good uh obviously this report addressing and and my goodness there's been lots of them uh and and they seem to be shelled but uh, lots of chatter about uh extremism in the military how concerned are you about this um what a great question scott you know i've been a little less concerned than some people about right-wing extremism in Canada. Some would criticize me for that. It it certainly is an issue, and it's one that we have to take seriously. Uh, How bad a threat it is to Canadian national security, I would submit not as bad as some people think it is, which is not to say we should ignore it. And your introductory remarks are are bang on, Scott. The military has known about this for a while, and it's kind of puzzling why they haven't taken more steps to address it in the past. And this all part of the systemic issues that we've seen and have obviously been brought to light again over the last year or so. Absolutely. And, you know, the Canadian military has been through one hell of a couple of years, as you're well aware, Scott, in terms of allegations and and not only, not only allegations, but evidence of some extremist conduct on a variety of levels. This is just one more thing, I think, to hit the screen. And I think it leads to the question that a lot of Canadians probably have is what is happening with the Canadian military and, and what's being done about it? Here's a military that we we're all justifiably proud of for, for many decades in this country. And people are now wondering, is it is the Canadian military is as good as we once thought it was? Uh, well, even when you've got ministers like Minister Jolie saying that we're conveners, we're not really known to be a military power. Have we made that decision yet, Phil, exactly what the heck we are supposed to be? I don't think so, Scott. You know, it's funny you asked that question. You know, after the, the end of the Second World War, we had this, the fourth largest navy in the world. And Canada's military now is, is, is uh, I don't know where it ranks, even within NATO let alone internationally in terms of what we spend on defense and how much we maintain, obviously, with the war in Ukraine right now and demands that Canada do more. I'm not sure we can or cannot do it. I'm not a military specialist, but I think that, you know, over the past decade, certainly since the end of the Second World War, we've allowed a very, very proud, capable military to get to the point where it's not what it used to be. And I'm not sure that's such a great thing to to, to have as as a Canadian. Uh, obviously chatter for a long time about NORAD in protecting the North. Uh, and again, kind of brushed off, but now with the war, uh, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, all of a sudden this is a priority now and they're replacing NORAD. Your thoughts? Well, you know, we've written on our Americans' backs for a long time. And, and even when I was intelligence at CSIS and CSC, there was no question we got an awful lot more than we gave back to the system. And I think these are valid questions to ask, is that how much do we need to do? How much are we willing to pay for? And how much do we actually pull our weight within ter- in terms of the North American alliance and the NATO alliance? You know, we're nowhere near 2% of military spending, which is sort of the baseline for these countries. So I think these are tough questions that have to be answered by the Trudeau government. What do we want our military to do? And how much of our responsibility and onus is upon us to defend our, our own borders, including the northern border? 
And are we not giving up enough stock as it is that that will, you know, force us to replenish a lot of this stuff and therefore maybe examine how, how strong our defense is? I hope so, Scott. But, you know, we're coming off a COVID pandemic where how much is the government in debt because of what COVID cost? Where is the military in terms of priorities versus where is the economy? Where is getting Canadians back to work? Where, where is the health system figure? Now, health is provincial, not, not federal, but there's still only so much money to go around. And, and I wonder sometimes, you know, what priority defense, let alone intelligence, is going to get when, when, when all is said and done and decisions are made around the cabinet table. But the, the bottom line is we have to do more. And it's a matter of figuring out how we do more with what we have. Also announced today, boy, I've got a lot on the plate today, uh, the emergency inquiry into the use of the Emergency Act uh, is going to move forward. This in result as a result of the uh, Freedom Convoy protests that were in Ottawa. What do you think we're going to gain from this? Oh, Scott, I wish we had hours to talk about this, my friend. I was categorically against the the use of the Emergencies, the emergencies Act back in, in February. This was not an emergency for which this act was created. Of course, this is the the aftermath of the War Measures Act, and you and I are probably old to remember when that, when that was last invoked during the oh. FLQ crisis in nineteen in nineteen seventy. I hope that the that the, the government is taking the task over why it it chose this vehicle, which is an incredible um, ceiling on Canadians' rights and freedoms at, at a time when we weren't at war with anybody. Now it's no longer the War Measures Act. I get that, but I think a lot of there's a lot of very embarrassing questions the government has to say. What was it that made you think? You could declare this particular act in a situation that didn't warrant it. So who knows, Scott? We've all seen inquiries come and go and, and debates come and go and not much said. I sincerely hope at least that the, the serious questions are posed and we get some serious answers from the Trudeau government. Do you think that's possible considering the merger between the Liberals and the NDP on this? And, you know, it, it's the NDP that are leading this because they didn't want the Conservatives involved because apparently they were supporting this convoy. So where is the conflict of interest here? It's on both sides hugely and i'll remind you and your listeners scott that jagmeet singh called what happened on parliament hill an act of terrorism which i <laughs> laughed at when i heard that so yeah you've got the ndp in bed with the liberals they're going to support each other through this minority government it's really hard to see any have any optimism for any movement on this so in other words i just said we need there's serious questions these serious answers the questions are still serious i'm not sure the answers are going to be very serious in this regard Phil Gursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, former CSIS analyst. Phil, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks very much. Lots to talk uh, with Tim Powers about Chairman of Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, uh, whether it's the Emergencies Act or um, anything else politically, especially with the military today. Let's bring in Tim. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. God, I am doing well. I went from running that great race in Hamilton to just finishing the Boston Marathon last week. So I'm crediting you guys with giving me that last pump to get her all done. Oh, my goodness. Congratulations to you. So I remember you ran the Around the Bay, but then went to and, and did the marathon in Boston. Tell us what that experience was like for you. Oh, uh, incredible. I know Not to self-promote, but I, 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 didn't, I didn't have the official qualifying time. So as part of a team that was raising money for melanoma awareness, we raised uh and prevention we raised about 300 over 300,000 US and then ran uh, ran the the race like everybody else it was incredible um it's everything they say it is the atmosphere the crowds the the vibe it's such a big deal and uh and in the security i have to tell you it's something else you after the terrible bombing 9 years mm -hmm. ago it's probably now the safest place on earth but uh 
once in a lifetime experience and then to have my little boy at the finish line with a big sign saying go data go as uh, I hobbled oh, through and he's like man. how come he didn't win <laughs> I know there's a lot of reasons for that <laughs> how come you didn't win we thought you'd be first dad that's hilarious you know, son when you're when you're six as you know scott you're you're blue uh willfully ignorant to the realities of your father's limited athletic abilities at least when it comes to running hey when he is old enough to know he will certainly understand exactly what it took to do that congratulations tim that's quite a that's quite a feat good for you uh, uh, thank you and uh start as i say hamilton helped me get over the hump doing that 30k was a key uh key milestone and in, in on the track all this but anyway enough yeah. about me and the, the running and yeah, to many, he, he, to many of the, to many of runners out there, the Hamilton race is a big tune-up race for uh, a lot of these larger marathons, including Boston. Um, all right, let's get to the Emergencies Act. Uh, the inquiry is going on. Um, you know, obviously there was some chatter at the beginning of all of this that they didn't want a conservative at the helm because they thought that was biased. Uh, so we have an uh, an NDP uh, Matthew Green at the head of the helm, uh, especially after we've got a merger with the Liberal and the NDP government. So how is that not biased? Are we going to get to the bottom of this? Well, maybe this public inquiry that was announced today will do more of that. I, I met Matt Green. He's from around your way, of course, around Hamilton. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I actually find him to be fair. Um, but uh, clearly the NDP has skin in the game, or did. They supported the Liberals in, the, in, in making sure the Emergencies Act came forward. I, I think the judicial inquiry has the potential to give us more. Um, I mean, let's not assume it was done with all the right motives and, attend, uh, and, and intentions. They waited till the very last day to announce it. Don't know much about the justice who's been named, but I'm sure he's a person of integrity. And many of these justices, as we've seen in other inquiries, when they get in this role, they, they don't pull any punches. Um, nobody knew who Justice Gomery was before he took on the Gomery inquiry. I don't know if it will be analogous or not, but my point is, when you do have independent judges who've grown up in uh, the school of the judiciary, where their independence is valued and uh, and respected, uh, there is hope for more clarity about uh, understanding of what happened uh, in February and uh, and March. I was listening to a interview uh, with uh, Matthew Green on this, and and I'm paraphrasing here, so I may not be 100% accurate, and excuse me if I'm not, because I just sort of caught this. Um, he said, this isn't necessarily an inquiry about whether it, the act should have been called or not, but what we can do in the future to make sure that it's used more efficiently. What does that say? That, that says there's... I, well, when I hear you say that um you think it has to be a little bit more than about that about whether we can use it more efficiently i think it has to look at as it should what went right and what went wrong and that's something more than efficiency uh that that's a comprehensive analysis of you know was our intelligence working uh was it an overreach wasn't it an overreach as i said to you at the time and still maintain and we have another protest coming into ottawa this weekend if you were here and you lived here for three or four weeks um, during all of this, as as I did, many others did and do, uh, you had no issues with this Emergencies Act because it brought it all to an end. Um, but, but that was then. Uh, I think we all want to know all of the background, all of the decision-making process to determine if it was, in fact, the right tool that was used and also what other indicators might be set out for its use in the future because the first time it was used what in 32 
32, 30, no, yeah, 34 years of the inception of the act. Um, is the emergency, uh, we certainly know that this ended, the emergency act ended all of this, but will we find out what started it? Because it seemed that the prime minister didn't even speak for till about two weeks into this. Uh, and then it was, you know, shoving it off to the police chief who was then shoving it off, uh, or sorry, to the mayor who was then shoving it off to, to the police chief. Well, we, we all know that the emergency act was brought in to end it, but many have thought, you know, it's because it was ill handled at the very beginning. Oh, will we examine that at all on, on what took um, so long? For I don't any know if we'll get it in. One would hope in the judicial inquiry, yes, that we'll get at that, that it touches all of that. The city of Ottawa is also going to have its own inquiry because there's, you know, all sorts of working theories about the Ottawa police didn't act quickly enough. What was the intelligence they were seeing? Was the intelligence being shared? All of that's crucial to this, right? Because, again, I'll just speak to what's about to happen now. You have the Ottawa police chief out now talking about the convoy that's coming in here, Rolling Thunder, I believe it's called, coming in here this Mm -hmm. week, talking about what they're going to let happen, what they're not going to let happen, what they're clearly instructing the convoy to do. So they've learned lessons from the past. Why didn't they know these things beforehand? You know, all of these things we have to get at, the intelligence, the operational plans, political interference or not um you know that that's all all vital considering what we've seen happen in in ukraine over the last uh what is it 60 days now does it make our use of the does it make our use of the emergencies act look silly um you know and and again Uh, i'm not i don't mean to i don't mean to make any light of what the people of ottawa went through but comparing the two and we're still calling an emergency act which was like a war measures act I, I don't I don't know that we know the answer to that right now. On the surface, the answer would be no, but we don't know what's below the surface, right? Um, so what what did we prevent? Did we prevent? Um, what was prevented? Was death prevented? And clearly, it was. Um, but was that a consequence of the act? Would that have happened anyway? Did you need the act? All of those things need to be discovered. So on the surface, you can say right now, yeah, maybe it doesn't look like it, but I don't think that's the right answer to be given now we may come to that conclusion or they may come to that conclusion but for right now i think we just have to wait how concerned are or is ottawa or officials there about this other motorcycle convoy people are anxious because you know particularly the people in the downtown core like i said to you before our offices down there um, there's lots of businesses i mean spring right the city's opening up um the restaurant owners the businesses they don't want to lose business, lose opportunity after the two years that they've had. And the Ottawa residents themselves are a little bit frustrated with the ongoing protests. And they're paying attention to what the police are doing because I think the police are trying to rebuild their confidence with Ottawa residents who didn't feel they handled it well initially. So people are paying attention. You're hearing a lot about it right now. Uh, hopefully it is just a peaceful protest, non-event. Nobody gets hurt. They roll in and roll out. It's just a thunderclap, not a thunderstorm. <laughs> Tim Powers with us, chairman of Summa Strategies, managing director of Abacus Data, uh, talking about the Emergencies Act, its de- uh, declaration, and the inquiry that is uh, following up. Tim, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care, my friend. Bye. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up tonight after the 6 o'clock news. End is with us now, and you can also read him in your spectator. Scott, how are you? I hope you're well. I am great. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing very well. So here we are with the Toronto Raptors. Another game tonight. They're still in this. They've won one. Can they? Is this is this hope or delaying the inevitable? Uh, I would be shocked if it was not delaying the inevitable. I mean, they look. They they got their win. They should have had two wins in the series, quite honestly. And it's a very different story. I mean, they had a 17 point lead in game yeah three. I think it was, and they blew that one. They win that. Man, now it's it's a totally different. But now you've got no Fred Van Vliet today, yeah. and you, Scotty Barnes, the Rookie of the Year, is still playing on a wonky ankle, and either playing in Philadelphia where they just got eviscerated the last two times. So I, you know, you got your fingers crossed, you got your toes crossed, all those things. But I, I suspect that it ends tonight. All right, uh, let's move on. Inquiry into the Emergency uh, Act, uh, it, cont- it, it uh, has been uh, officially started. Uh, the NDP and Liberal government working together. Obviously now uh, it's Matthew Green who's who's heading this, and they didn't want anybody with the Conservatives uh, heading this because they thought they were biased, yet we have a blended government here. Your thoughts? Will there be any sort of, uh, what do you think is going to come out of this inquiry about the use of the Emergencies Act during the convoy? Nothing. This is a complete and utter waste of taxpayers' money because it should have been an independent thing. If they were going to do it, do what they're doing in Hamilton with the Red Hill Creek thing. Look, it's costing us a ton of dough in this city. That one started today. But at least you've got an independent person who's running the thing. So at the end, you haven't just spent all this money and then everyone goes, yeah, but. That what's what honestly? What's the point? Remember the last time? What was the last one? The last one was about the um, what was the one where they restricted the conservative questions for you know whatever? And at the end again, you say so. What was the point of this? It's just for show. It's a complete ridiculous sham thing that is just for show. And Matthew Green may have every intention of running this as a fair and square thing, but uh, it's if as you say, if you have one half of the amalgam government that is deciding this, unless you are supportive of that group, and that's fine if you do, but most other people and even those who support it are going to say, what, you're expecting they're going to come out and absolutely rip the government for what they did or say it shouldn't happen when, when the leader of the NDP already has supported the use of the Emergencies Act? You think now uh, that the, the, the government and each side, when each of their leaders was fully in favor of this, you think either side, NDP or Liberal, is going to come up and say, yeah, Jugmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau, man, were they ever way off. Never going to happen. And it was interesting, and, and I'm paraphrasing uh, what Mr. Green said, but uh, basically he said, it's, it, we're not really here to figure out whether it should have been called or not. <laughs> what, what are you there for? What yeah. Well, to just to make sure road? you do it to, exactly, so you make sure you do it right next time. Yeah, but how can you make sure you do it right next time if you don't know if you did it right this time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me ask you this question. Um, I think a lot of people are trying to push this under the rug and get rid of it, as opposed to publicize it and say, look how close the city came to total catastrophe. And I also think, well, let me ask you this. Does what is happening or uh, the Russian invasion in Ukraine make our use of the Emergencies Act, formerly called the War Measures Act, look silly? Well, I don't know that you need the thing in Ukraine to make it look unnecessary. I don't know if silly is the word, 
But you know, look, I go back to my point. unnecessary. Think of the think of the inquiries that we've had over the years that have had real teeth. All right. Think of how the uh, the um, Dubbin inquiry, Ben Johnson, and those guys. Think of how that changed things because it had it was independent. And it had huge teeth. It changed sports, not just in Canada, although largely in Canada, but around the world. But imagine now if instead of having Charles Dubbin as the head of that inquiry, Charlie Francis, Ben Johnson's coach, was the head of that inquiry. What would we have got out of that? Absolutely jack diddly. Nothing. We would have got nothing. We would have got nothing. And so, I look, I maybe, maybe at the end of this, Matt Green and whoever else is going to be ruling or whatever they do on this thing is going to come out and say the whole thing was entirely out of line. I will fall out of my chair if that happens. I will fall. We couldn't get the proper, we couldn't have a proper inquiry about, as I recall, the Aga Khan and the prime minister going there, and we couldn't have mm. it about the SNC-Lavalin. And we can't, when you put people who represent a party in charge of these things and the party has a vested interest in the outcome, you will either never get a proper report or you will never get people to believe the report was proper, so there's going to be no credibility with it. Either way, this is a giant waste of time and an absolute bit of performance art that they'd be better off just skipping. Bring in someone independent or just go ahead and do what job you were doing already because no one is going to believe you. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up next after the 6 o'clock news, and you can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave for all being part of this today, and thank you as uh, your participation is always, always valued. And we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word, like with Tony. Hello. I'm listening to the the only reason why the government enacted the uh, Emergency Measures Act is because they were afraid or uh, felt challenged by the uh, truckers uh, in, in their own house. 99. 